Hello, and welcome to episode 47 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl is the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, so between the two of us, we produce probably all the tennis podcast content you could ever need, and Carl even has the benefit of special guests on every episode, so be sure to check his out as well. So this past week kind of feels like a down week, but in weird professional tennis fashion, the week after the Grand Slam is somehow even busier than the Grand Slam itself. Uh, most top players were taking the week off, but we had 12 Davis Cup qualifying ties. We had two WTA tour events, including a premiere. Uh, we're ramping up to Fed Cup quarterfinals weekend. All sorts of tennis news dropping from different directions, including a tournament disappearing and a new one popping up in China later this year. So even though guys like Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal were taking the week off, a lot of tennis happening. So I want to start with Davis Cup. And one of the most striking things about Davis Cup is we have an expanded field for this new 18-team Houtenani in November in Madrid. And the, the ties this weekend determine 12 of those in the qualifying round. So a lot of countries are going to be involved, including some that don't really have that much of a chance, like maybe Colombia, which has a good doubles team, but not any really stellar singles players. But those 18 teams will not include Switzerland because Federer and Vavrinka weren't interested in playing and they played the Russians who brought a good team. So Switzerland's out. And Carl, I really wonder about one thing is that the, the, PK group and the new ITF Davis Cup concept seems to be geared towards getting crowds, getting getting press, like making this as big as possible. So the ITF has used their two wild cards. I want to get back to that in a second too. They've used their two wild cards. Switzerland's out. Imagine in September, Federer says, oh, "I'm open to playing this Davis Cup thing. This might be my only chance. Any way you can make it happen." I mean, if you're if you're the ITF. What would you do about that? Would you just say, sorry, you should have played in February? I think you have to. I mean, I, I imagine that the ITF made its best possible case already and made its best possible offer. And as much as people are already are somewhat skeptical of this new format, if they just dangle wild cards and break format to get stars, then, then it is truly completely an exhibition and somewhat of a farce. Do you think it would be that much different than the two wild cards they've already given out? Because, I mean, the in their favor, they structured this whole thing to have two wild cards, and they announced them immediately, or about the same time that the qualifying field was announced, and they gave them to Britain and Argentina, which, at least nominally, they said it was for the two most recent champions who weren't already qualified by being in the semifinals last year. But just coincidentally, that was, was two teams that would be a little bit fragile going into qualifying and would get you Andy Murray and Juan Martin Del Potro, at least in theory. It's not going to bring you Andy Murray now. But those were two wild cards handed out in what seemed to me a pretty transparent ploy to get big stars to show up. So do you think that some kind of late finagling for Switzerland would be that much worse than what they've already done for Britain and Argentina? Yes, because 
first of all, when you announce arbitrary and maybe maddening formats for for a new competition, you got to stick with them just for the sense of them having any meaning and fairness. And and secondly, the big difference is giving a wild card to a team that lost. I think that just undermines the whole the whole competition. I want to. I think you maybe don't think so since you're posing the question. I want to hear your your view on that. I, I just also want to mention on Andy Murray. The last I heard, maybe the retirement thing is is on hold. If he had that surgery that uh, Bob Ryan had, and presumably that could mean that he he makes more of a comeback than just appearing at Wimbledon to have a farewell at his favorite tournament. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um... Yes, he had the surgery. Um, it, as far as I heard, it went well. I did see some comments from a, from a surgeon who does those sorts of operations who said that it's it's usually not adequate to get people back to competition level. It's designed so that athletes can you know live comfortably in retirement and play golf and you know teach their kids to play tennis and stuff like that. I mean. Maybe that's for the normal person, and Andy Murray is so far from the normal person that forecasts like that are almost irrelevant. But I guess to me, I'm not ruling out a comeback at some point. It would be super cool if he follows in the footsteps of Bob Bryan and has this surgery and comes back as a double specialist. I mean, imagine the Murray brothers on tour for the next five years. It would be amazing. Um, But I feel like the odds of saying he's going to be at any particular event as a singles player are really low yeah it's probably most likely that if he appears at all for gb he'll be like an assistant captain or something and not not playing yeah i think so too and it's for the record i i agree with you on the wild card thing i i might in general feel even more strictly about it than you do i think the reason i'm i'm probing the question is as as you say, if you if you introduce a new event, you have to you have to draw the line somewhere. Whatever you set out the rules as, you need to stick to those rules. But it feels like this is this is the sort of event that makes you wonder if they're going to do that. Like I, we agree that they should, but if there's if there's ever an ITF or ATP event that's going to do a last minute bend of the rules to get Federer in there, I mean, of course, big if if he's interested. Uh, this is the one there where it happens. There's so much money at stake. They are in a position to set the rules kind of however they want this first time. Um, it just seems like an issue that might come back in September or October. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine them, instead of issuing a wild card to Switzerland, saying, you know what, let's just call it Team Europe and maybe we should play you know, against Team World, and maybe we should rename the whole thing after an all-time great who's won two Grand Slams, and maybe we should just let Roger kind of plan the format, and um, yeah, then we could get some top players. Yeah, I mean, Tiafo will be there for sure. Absolutely. Um, and Diego. And Diego, that's right. I guess the the one, I'm probably, I'm probably belaboring this, but um, the one way that they could sort of pretend to be upholding the rules, but let a team in, whether it's Switzerland or somebody else, is if they convinced a country to withdraw. Like, imagine that, let's say Kyle Edmund is out for the season. So Britain got this wild card. Andy Murray's now out. Kyle Edmund's now out. Their number one player is then 
Cam Nori, and they have a couple good doubles players. I'm not saying they should withdraw, but I'm saying that a situation like that could make it possible for the ITF to strongly suggest that a team says, you know what, we don't deserve this wild card. Let's give it to a team with some healthy players. Could happen. Um, Cam Nori, Dan Evans, and a couple of doubles players, who knows? I know. it's not, it's not Especially because we don't know who else is playing, right? Who else is participating for, for other yeah, like, countries? Yeah, like Zverev, is, who even played this weekend, is going to be in the Maldives instead of in Madrid. Yeah. I actually was in the Maldives about six months ago, and I might go to Madrid. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not a Maldives kind of guy. Um, so Jeff is available, Team USA. Or Team Norway? Well, Team Germany is the one that needs a replacement. True, but I, I don't know how you're going to qualify for Team Germany. I think if you go back, like, mm, maybe it's only four or five generations, there's one There's one German ancestor. So I, I don't see what's wrong with that. Um, All right, he's got a good one-handed backhand, people. I have a one-handed backhand. I have one hand that I use on my backhand. I, that's as far as I'm going to go. But thank you, you have Carl. hit a one-handed backhand. That is good. Oh, there we go. Now we've gotten to the heart of it. Thank you. Um uh, so, back back to Davis Cup rules. Since, I mean, this is all a lot different than it was in the past. In the past, the men's draw had four rounds. Every round had these somewhat arcane rules for seedings and who was at home and the rules around choosing what kind of surfaces they could use and so on. But now, it's a lot more streamlined. We're all building towards this one event in November and... There's this single round of qualifying. And what I thought was was interesting is presumably we know what the surface is in Madrid. I'm assuming we're playing it on clay since it's at Caja Magica. Um, so it, if that's on clay and there's this one round of qualifying, it seems like you can at least make an argument to have all the qualifying ties on clay. And a lot of them were uh, the ones I watched in Slovakia and Austria, I think. They were both indoor clay. But at the opposite extreme... Italy went to India and played a tie there on grass, uh, which seems like is not the best way to select a qualifier for a clay court event later in the year. So I haven't heard anybody talking about this, changing the rules, but it seems like it, it could come up. I mean, Carl, where would you come down on that? Would you support a change to basically force all the qualifying ties to be on the same surface as the year-end event? I guess I don't see why this is so different from the former Davis Cup. I mean, I guess it's different in that if one of those teams wins the tie on an unusual surface to to reach the quarters or semis or final, there's a chance they would then host the next round and again use that surface, but there's an equal chance that they wouldn't. So you, you would you would constantly have surface changes from round to round. Um so I guess if if we're happy that we're keeping some element of the old Davis Cup format, I think this is one that people really enjoy the the sort of tactics that go into choosing a surface and the oddity of playing on a certain surface at a time of the season when no other events are played on that surface. Yeah, I guess uh, I'm not sure where I come down on this, but I might be more in favor of just going for a uniform surface because... In, in the past, you're right, you wouldn't necessarily be able to choose the, the service in every successive round. But when you're playing a first-round tie in February, 
you not only don't know who you're playing or where you're playing, you don't even know what surface it's going to be on, whether you're going to choose or not. So you're doing whatever you can to advance that next round, whatever that next round brings. But in this case, this is a, this is a, a year-long event, the winner of which will be decided on clay courts. So if we want the best 18 teams or the best 16 teams plus two wildcards playing on clay in November, it seems like we have to decide them on a clay court. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's enough. Like, I think if we if we're worried about the teams showing up at the final not necessarily being the ones best equipped to play the final, then the wild cards are more troubling to me than the surface. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, wild cards are always troubling. That's what they do to us. So, by the way, have you seen definite confirmation it's going to be clay, or is it just based on the venue? I haven't, but I haven't really looked. Uh, I'm assuming with Spain as the host, with the venue, it, I, th- that's my guess. But I, I'm if, if if that information is out there, I'd love to hear otherwise. So the Davis Cup. I'm just. I, I did not look this up before the podcast, which is my bad. The um, DavisCup.com. It will take place on a hard court. So not only is that grass court warm up uh, qualifier off, so are the the clay ones that you watched. Huh. Okay. Hard courts in Cajamarca. Go figure. It's it's magic. So they could you know the court could be anything. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Um, maybe they could play racket lawn there instead. Okay, now you have to explain what that is. Well, Carl, I can't explain what that is. You're the future racket lawn <laughs> amateur star. Tell us about racket lawn. It is a hybrid competition of four racket sports. If Jeff and I were playing a match, we would, in succession from small racket to large, play a game to 21 in table tennis, then badminton then squash then tennis and tally up the scores from the four games and you have a winner and this is popular in austria in finland and sweden i think um when jürgen Meltzer was out with an injury he played a racket lawn event with i believe a world champion there's a highlights video on youtube if you want to check that out um and carl you're thinking of of giving racket lawn a try in a few months is that right there's a competition every year in Massachusetts in the spring. Uh, I think it's in April this year, and I am very much considering entering the very lowest division. <laughs> is that the only one in the U.S.? Yes. Uh, one of my neighbors is Swedish, and in Sweden it's quite popular, and he laments that in the U.S. this is the only tournament. He, he played it last year and won the second division. There's, I was having a conversation with someone else about this a week or two ago who asked me if I was into racket lawn because I'm living in Scandinavia, and she just assumed that Norway and Sweden were equal, which is a good way to get a Norwegian or an adoptive Norwegian really angry at you, for the record. But I explained that it is, it is a, a thing in Sweden and Finland, but in Norway, they play a slightly different variant of racket lawn, where you wear skis... And you go outside, and you don't take any rackets. And sometimes you shoot things, right? Sometimes you shoot things, but there are pretty strict gun control laws, so it's not that convenient. You mostly just go outside and ski. Got it. Okay, yeah, that sounds pretty similar. 
So it's a, it's a game to 21? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's to 21, which is how many times I fall down before I give up and come back inside. Um, so that could happen at Caja Magica, or they could just play the Davis Cup finals on hard courts, apparently. So that's, that's good to know. I didn't realize that. Um, a couple other Davis Cup things more on the business side that I want to talk about. I mean, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't change your larger point. Like, the question no. just becomes, why not play the qualities on hard courts? Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess it makes sense that they're playing it on hard courts because it is following all of the hard court events at the end of the season. So there's some logic there. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether they change that up or whether it becomes like the tour finals that it just sort of becomes a hard court event by inertia. Or Rafa what? would not be happy. No, but I mean, he'll retire. Uh, maybe Djokovic will stay as leader of the player council and nudge things in that direction. I don't know what kind of power he has over this since he might not even be playing. But Serbia did qualify even without him, unlike Switzerland. So Djokovic at least has the option to go compete in Madrid. Um, one, of the, one of the bits of news about Davis Cup that came out this week is that La Liga, which is the Spanish football league, I think. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this is not soccer ops yet, people. <laughs> Give Jeff a break. No, it's, it's definitely not. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you've probably heard of that one, La Liga. They're a sponsor of Davis Cup. And uh, at least the, the consensus that I saw emerging among tennis Twitter people is that it seemed weird or wrong or somehow that a soccer league would be sponsoring a tennis event. Um, I don't. I didn't see a lot of explanation there. But do you have a gut feeling about that, Carl? Like, is is that sensible, logical, offensive? Where? What do you think about that? Okay. So first of all, on the offensive side, <laughs> there are so many conflicts of interest within tennis that having a sponsor outside of tennis, whether it's another sport or whatever, it feels cleaner to me. So I, I don't see a problem there. Uh, what it does remind me of is what I think we talked about when it emerged that PK was basically going to be running tennis from now on, which is tennis as a financial entity is so tiny compared to so many other sports that single figures who aren't even the top figure in their sport can have so much money that they can immediately make an enormous impact and get enormous power. So it kind of makes sense that another... And this isn't even the whole sport. This is just one of the leagues and arguably not the most powerful league in the world could look over at tennis and be like, oh, tennis, that's a sport that's really popular worldwide that has really recognizable figures, but also that wouldn't cost that much to to put our name on. Let's that's a good investment. Let's do that. Yeah, that makes sense. And from La Liga's perspective, it's just a big event in their country this year. So it's not a whole lot different than sponsoring like a big music festival in Madrid. Um, and there's also plenty of precedents for, for sponsorships across sports. Like I, at le- I think, is it Manchester United that has a relationship with the New York Giants in the NFL, something like that? And it's a sponsorship relationship? I'm not sure. I did. I think it's more than just a one-way sponsorship arrangement. I just read a whole freaking book, well, not about this, but a whole book about the Premier League, and um, it mentioned this, and I've forgotten it already. So, Did not... you read The Club? I did read The Club, oh. written by your friends Josh Robinson and Josh Clegg, is that his name? John Clegg. John Clegg. Ah, I knew it wasn't quite right. 
Um, yeah, which is an enjoyable read if you're interested in Premier League or not interested in Premier League as I am, but read and enjoyed the book anyway. Um, but there's that relationship there that if, if you are an NFL team, you can promote Premier League or vice versa, and it's not like you're cutting into your own bottom line. Like If you think about the whole entertainment landscape in the world these days, you have Netflix, which their goal is to compete against every other conceivable form of entertainment or not even entertaining use of time. I think the, their CEO said something like Netflix is competing against like you taking your wife out for dinner because um, then you won't be watching Netflix. So in that world, it kind of makes sense for big sporting events to band together and promote each other to keep people watching sports instead of watching, uh, watching Friends for the eighth time. Um, so it seems like we, we're, we're both on that one, and it's, it's certainly nothing to get up in arms about, um, even if it is a little bit surprising to see the logo of a football association on the boards at a tennis event. Yeah, and if it means a lot of La Liga stars attend, that'll be great for the event. Yeah, I, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if they are. Like, I, I think the the analogy is probably closer to what I said earlier that it's it's like La Liga sponsoring a music festival. It's just a big event in Spain that every every sporting organization, maybe even every organization in general in Spain, benefits the bigger it is. So they want it to be big, and celebrities will be there. So. The other question I have about Davis Cup, and you gave me a good segue to this, Carl, talking about the fact that PK now has so much power with uh, bringing so much money into the sport, even if it's not a lot of money in non-tennis terms. Um, the way that this deal is structured between PK's group and the ITF is is the the group guaranteed some extremely large sum of money, like a billion dollars or something, over a number of years, and some of that would be toward the event itself and some of it was to be distributed among the different national federations and the cynical part of me says they gave it to all these federations to get the federations to vote for it because who's not going to vote for a deal that includes just having money sent to you but at the same time as this new davis cup rolling out we have the new itf transition tour that we tried to go through a few podcasts ago and a lot of players are up in arms about this it seems like there's not enough not enough tournaments or enough entry places, especially in qualifying. And another another complaint they have is, I think it used to be that anyone entering qualifying had to pay an entry fee, but but main draw like entrance didn't have to pay an entry fee. Now they do, and it's either forty dollars or forty euro, probably forty euro. So every player getting a prize money check at the end of a tournament down to ITF fifteen Ks has forty euros deducted from their prize money and often their prize money is not a whole lot more than that. So this is this is not a drop in the bucket for these players especially if they're being hit with 40 euros every week of the year. So at the same time that we have this huge influx of money into the ITF, uh, we have a new way for players to earn even less money uh, when they were already earning extremely little. So Carl, what do you think about this? I mean, do you think that, that tennis would be better off with this money going to players and tournaments as opposed to federations? Or is there a logic here that I haven't spelled out that, that suggests that the, the ITF will be most productive for tennis if they do funnel all this newfound money through the national federations? I mean... 
there's something nice about federations outside of the four Grand Slam host countries federations getting more money, but it just stands to reason that if you want to create a system that allows the best players, no matter their financial resources, to have a chance to to make enough money to keep playing tennis and eventually be playing on the main tours and not the transition tour, that prize money should be higher. And whether that's actually raising prize money or not knocking off an entry fee from the prize money or covering expenses, whatever whatever it is, in effect, anything that makes that more difficult is going to force players who don't have the federation backing for whatever reason to drop out. And we've all heard stories about players who run afoul of the federation because the federation and their parents don't get along, because the federation has a different view about where they should be coached or who should be coaching them, what their schedule should be, when they should start playing tournaments, um, that it, it just seems sensible not to give the federation all of this money, not to mention that there's plenty of evidence from tennis, but maybe even more so from other sports, I'm thinking soccer, that these federations can become corrupt, or if not corrupt, at least bloated and inefficient and spending too much of their money on administration and salaries of, of the heads and not on tennis development directly. Yeah, I think I think sending money to federations is a good way to end up with more people doing jobs with tennis development in the name, but not necessarily uh, having more tennis development or more support of their players. So I'm, I'm with you there. Uh, I, I honestly do not know what the solution is, and I'm not sure that anybody out there has a good solution for all these problems. And everyone kind of wants every player to have the chance to pursue their dream and also make a living doing it. But I think that the higher you, the higher you raise prize money, the more players will pursue it and will reach some kind of equilibrium where a lot of players are trying to someday get to the top, even if it means great sacrifice to do that. So I'm not, I'm not sure if simply raising prize money is the answer. I, I don't think that funneling more money to federations is the answer. But I'm also not sure that anyone has correctly posed the question. Uh, so trying to find the answer might be fruitless at this point. I, I do have a non-rhetorical question. Can you name some top players, women or men, who are federation developed, whatever that means. I mean, I'm sure many got some financial backing at some point from the federation, but in terms of like federation coaching and development and basically making those jobs with the words tennis development in the name pay off. Well, I think most of young American players are involved with the USTA to some degree. I don't know how much of a degree, though? That's the question. Uh, and and I'm asking about top stars. Yeah. So, I mean, well, maybe maybe some of the young American women qualify, but not so much the men. Yeah, just a side note, Katie McNally, 17 years old, just won the um, ITF 100,000 event in Midland, Michigan. She beat top 100 players, Madison Brengel and Rebecca Peterson, um, another fringy top 100 in Jessica Pegula. So... She could be a big star on the way. But I also don't know... Like, I, I think that a, a lot of a lot of federations, in especially Eastern Europe uh, and, and Asia, like, as soon as there is a promising player, then the, the federation gets involved. I don't know exactly where you'd point, point to and say, 
this is a federation product or this is a non-federation product if a player is winning tournaments at age 13 and the federation throws resources at them. Because I think that's probably the most common path a player takes. Um, but I honestly, I don't know. So speaking of federations, one more business thing, then we'll get back to the tennis, hopefully. Um, the other big news this week is the Connecticut Open in New Haven, the premier WTA event the week before the U.S. Open. It was sold, and it was sold to a group that's moving into China. So there will be a tournament in Zhengzhou, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong, but it's somewhere in China. Uh, and that's happening starting this year. So right now, there's nothing on the WTA calendar the week before the U.S. Open. And the Zhengzhou tournament is moving to the week after the U.S. Open. So there's a premier event on a different continent immediately after the U.S. Open, just like there's a premier event in St. Petersburg this past week, right after the Australian Open. Um, and Stan- is Stanford premier? Stanford is premier, yeah. But that... and. I think it's San Jose now, and it is three weeks earlier, four weeks earlier, before Cincy. Oh, okay. I, th- I thought at one point there was a tournament in California, like the week after Wimbledon on hard courts. I think it's close, but it's, it, it maybe it okay. used to be, but I think it's two or three weeks after. It's the same weekend. It, it's The last few years has been the same week as Washington. Got it. Um. And I wonder, like, the USDA is pretty involved in a lot of the, the warm-up tournaments. Like, I think they have a partnership with the Cincinnati event, and maybe they own the Atlanta tournament. I'm not sure about Winston-Salem, but they're involved in a lot of these events. I just don't know to what the degree. And I'm a little bit disappointed that they let this happen, that they had the license for a premier event in their own neighborhood right before the, the U.S. Open, and the USTA couldn't come up with the money to keep it in the U.S. Uh, I mean, am I wrong, Carl? Doesn't it seem kind of weird to to have a, a, a tournament in, I don't know, a rich country with a lot of tennis and just lose that event and weaken the U.S. calendar even more? Yeah, and this was, as you say, in the same neighborhood. It's a short train ride from New York. You, you attended qualies there last year and i guess it's last year did did you get any sense that this was going to be its last year that it was in danger no i mean it was like you said i was there for the first day of quali so it was almost entirely empty but that's just what happens the first day of qualifying at a, a tournament like that um but it seemed to be really well run most things were well organized it looked like a pleasant place to watch tennis there was lots of promotion um everything i've heard and read about this event over the years suggested it was reasonably healthy like fans would show up uh, there was community support and all that kind of stuff so it didn't appear to be on its last legs but then again I didn't see the crowds there during the week so I, I wonder whether there will be a something popping up like the USTA will sponsor some kind of event, maybe an international, if not a, probably not a premier given the way the WTA works, but there'll be some event this, this week, but it, it, it does seem to be a, so it seems to be disappointing that the U S has lost another tournament since that seems to be the trend things are going. Like there's still plenty of tournaments in the U S but it used to be, you could play probably half the year in without leaving the U S playing a professional event every week. But that's not the case anymore for top-level players, or even close. Uh, 
I wonder if this is strategic on the part of the USDA and that, that there's some broader sense of this isn't a good investment long term, even though it, it looks like it would be. I don't know. I don't know what else they'd be spending money on, but I, I don't think they're short on money. I think the U.S. Open is still as successful as ever. So um, unless unless the expenses from redoing the, the stadiums uh, were so high that they that they just don't have as much money for other tournaments. Yeah, that's possible. Uh, but you're right. There could be a, a deeper strategy there. Uh, I'm, maybe it doesn't... I mean, I think one, one goal is simply to uh, support American players as much as possible. And it may be that having tournaments in the U.S. instead of other places isn't a good way to do that. I, I have no idea. The USTA, if they do have a strategy on this sort of thing, they don't really publicize it. So I'd, I'd like to hear more from, from that perspective, but don't expect to. Um, so let's see. So that'll wrap up our business of sports segments halfway through this week's podcast, or maybe even more. Um, let's talk a little bit about the WTA results from this past week. There were two tournaments, one in St. Petersburg, which was a premiere, although not a super strong premier event the week after the Australian Open. Um, there was an uh, international event in Thailand, and let's start there. It was a, a pretty decent draw for an international event. Garmini Muguruza was, was there, and the winner was Diana Yastrzemska, who is 18. She made a bit of a splash at the Australian Open, uh, upsetting Suarez Navarro, and then losing to Serena in the third round. But she knocked out Muguruza. She beat... Um, I'm forgetting who she'd be in the semifinal, but then she knocked out Tomljanovic in three sets in the the semi, in the final, and I th- I think she's up to number twelve in my Elo. Yeah, number twelve for an eighteen year old who's come pretty much out of nowhere in the last six months. Uh, I wrote something about her during the Australian Open that suggested she was as as big a hitter, or a similar game style as Sabalenka, who we've talked about enough already on the podcast, but. Um, Carl, if you see results like this, like two titles, decent competition, uh, all before your 19th birthday, given how the sport is getting older, I mean, what kind of tra- career trajectory do you think that, that suggests for a player? I mean, is this like straight path to the top for Diana Yastrzemska? I don't know about straight path. I mean, we've seen injuries derail players this young who looked as promising um i think we've also just seen you know players kind of regress but yeah on average really really good career trajectory and both of these these titles have come in just the last few months so um like you like you said that's that's not just you know two sort of random titles but like two events out of six or something um, and some wins at all the rest. I think the fact that Serena beat her six, two, six, one means we should not expect something immediate necessarily. Um, I also may be running afoul of some research you've already done in saying that maybe her, um, she's going to have some off days because of the aggressive style she plays is that not what you found though is that kind of the opposite of what you found like is she going to be as consistent or more as anybody else i don't think i've looked at that specifically the one th- what you might be thinking of is i expected to find that really big servers were 
more or less predictable in their results. Uh, I mm. don't think I've looked at aggression. Uh, and I think I generally agree with you, but it, it's interesting to note that uh, one one comp for her would be Petra Kvitova, who was playing like nonstop three setters. Had It felt like she had a lot more inconsistent results back when she was young than she does now. I mean, she, she still plays very aggressive and, and plays some three setters and has some disappointing losses, including this week, but... It, it's not something that has held back her career now that she's two slams, another slam final, and number two in the world. So there's a pretty high ceiling there. Yeah, Petra is, is an obvious, like, good model for Yastrzemska, and if, if she can achieve that, that'll be that'll be pretty great. Yeah, one thing about Yastrzemska, um, I didn't put this one in the show notes, so Carl, you might not have caught up with this news yet, but... In the in the final against Tom Leonovich, she she meaning Yastremska was down five two in the third set. She took a medical timeout, and now that we know the results, we can say of course the the tides turned. Yastremska came storming back, and she won in a third set tiebreak. And I don't I don't think there's a lot there's previous cases of Yastremska doing that specific thing, like being down and taking a medical timeout. But there are two instances where she's retired extremely close to a loss, including down five love in a third set to Monica Puig, I think. So she she's not playing with the, you know, traditional old-fashioned tennis rules of, you know, giving your opponent the, the honor of the victory and that kind of stuff. But specifically to the medical timeout business, I don't know how hurt she was, how much she needed the timeout, if at all. But this is not the first time this has happened, that someone's taken the so-called strategic timeout and been able to reverse the momentum. Um, do you... Th- I mean, I don't know how often this comes up. It seems like it. it, it it's one of those things that it, it's talked about a lot on tennis Twitter, but not so much outside of that. But do you have a sense, Carl? Is this something that we need a rule to address to stop players from taking these technical uh, tactical timeouts i think we shouldn't change the rules until we have a more persuasive case for doing so you would expect that a player is injured when they take a excuse me is trailing when they take a medical timeout when it's legit because if they're injured it'll have hurt them and given their opponent an edge and what would be the point of medical timeouts if they didn't sometimes lead to a player feeling better and playing better and turning things around? Like that, that to me is the natural course of events. If, if there's some kind of evidence that I I don't know how you would even study this, but if there's some way of of telling whether there, there, this is happening more often than you'd expect or something, but it just seems like, impossible to disambiguate between the cases where the player really is injured and is healed in some way or recovers and is not. Now, you could say, let's get rid of medical timeouts, period. If you need a break from playing because you're injured, then you need to retire and lose the match. And that would change decades of of tennis tradition, but maybe you can make a good case for it and, and get that enacted. But yeah, I just don't see how you could have medical timeouts and then be upset when a player takes them when they're down and comes back sometimes. Yeah, I'd, that's a good point that you would expect a player to be losing before they take a medical timeout. You'd expect them to play better 
after the medical timeout, assuming that they got some kind of useful treatment. Um, I guess the only way you could really test it is if you did have a large data set of medical timeouts, you could I mean, you could get a sense of how much players are improving after a medical timeout and see if you're if you think that's acceptable, basically, I mean, you're right. It would, it, it, it would be tough to to really get a clear answer to the question because there's we don't know how much a player is supposed to improve when they get a back rub or get a, a bandage for their toe or the various reasons that cause medical timeouts. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not clear, but you would expect a player to be better. And the other thing you didn't mention that I, I think is an issue is there's this assumption that breaks in in play can halt momentum or reverse momentum and that assumes first of all that there is such a thing as momentum (laughs) that comes up in tennis matches very often and maybe there is but I think that's probably overstated and the other thing is if there is a medical timeout it's a long break for both players I mean one of the players is getting a rub down or whatever but the other player yeah she has to deal with her nerves but she also gets a long break in the to rest after what's probably been a lot of hard work up to that point. So if you have the right mentality and your opponent takes an MTO, then it could be a pleasant break. It could be useful. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this tendency in sports, but maybe especially in tennis because it's it's a one-on-one sport in the singles format, to like, if we see one player break down than to say the thing that we think caused him or her to to break down is at fault and is is evil in some way instead of saying well they didn't have to react that way and they had an option of how they dealt with that situation i mean the the thing that came up during the australian open i think is the sense that a foot fault called on serena williams when she had match point was a great injustice partially because she didn't win another game from that point and lost a 5-1 lead in the third set. And if there's video footage showing she didn't foot fault, that's a great injustice. Absolutely. If she did foot fault and you have the sense of there shouldn't be a foot fault called on a big point, then change the rules so there aren't foot faults called on a big point. But if you're upset by the call because of what happened after it, which may also have been caused by her apparently turning an ankle, though she said she was fine, um, that's not a very solid way of reasoning about whether the foot fault call was just or not. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, it's interesting that, that in that case you have a player who came back to win because her opponent didn't take an MTO. Uh, whereas, yeah, she if, certainly could have. That's a good point. Yeah, uh, who knows what and, would have happened to the momentum then? And, and that was one other point I wanted to mention on this topic that we have to think about the player's mentality when he or she takes it. And I think everyone's assuming, oh, maybe Estremska and other players who've been accused of this are very strategic and they take it when they think it will hurt their opponent and and halt their momentum or whatever. But I think there are lots of things going through a player's mind when they're deciding, like, is this really that bad? I'm, I'm always kind of hurt. Is this hurt enough to make a difference? Can I just adjust my game? Um, If it's bad enough to take a timeout, should I just retire? Is it really possible for me to continue this match? Like, there are a lot of reasons why they might not take it right away and might be deciding whether or not to take it and when besides being strategic. Yeah. That's an interesting point as well that, yeah, if you have a, a nagging injury, then 
maybe that that le- in, in Yastrzemska's case, she was one game away from losing. So if she's thinking that maybe I should get some treatment here, I mean, I haven't I haven't watched this match, so I don't know whether it was it was how egregious it was if it, if, if it wasn't appropriate or not. But if if she was thinking she might take it, then that was her last chance. If she was going to get some treatment, see if she felt better, or even cynically speaking, if she was going to take this MTO she was arguably entitled to and see if she can change the momentum. Yeah, that was her last chance. And since it worked, we're looking at it as this huge momentum shifter. Had it not worked, it would be a footnote and it would be used as an explanation for why she lost. Like she she acknowledged she has this injury and that probably explains what happened before. Uh, so it becomes part of the narrative either way. And that, that's part of the problem with analyzing these things. If, if you go back through match reports and look at what people are saying about medical timeout, they're either an explanation for a comeback or an explanation for a lack of comeback. Uh, which doesn't make a particularly good case for one or the other being true in general. Um, the other WTA event was in St. Petersburg. Kiki Burton's won this one. Uh, another solid result from her. Uh, Donna Vekic was the finalist, and that's her biggest final. She's made some international finals. I think she's won an international title, title or two, but this is her first premier-level final. And even though it feels like she's been around forever, she was in the Tashkent final in 2012, I think it was, um, she's still only 22. So lots of lots of time left to keep developing. At the same time, she's been a prospect for a long time, and she's still around number 30 in the world, I think it is. I know she's around, around number 30 in my ELO ratings. So you were talking about this earlier, Carl, that with Yastrzemska, you can't expect, like a, you can't expect smooth sailing to the top but maybe she'll get there eventually. Do you think that's what we're seeing with Donna Vekic, that she's on this sort of bumpy but steadily increasing trajectory and she will keep improving even beyond where she is right now? There's some recency bias in this answer, but yeah, I, I think so. I think we could see her in the top 20 in not too long. This oh Well, I think she already got to the top 20 with this result, right? Oh, and be. and she um, well let's let's find out instead of guessing uh, and you know I could see her in the top ten in maybe the next eighteen months uh, maybe before yeah she's had she's had a good season so far this year she has a lot of talent um, yeah I, I wouldn't be surprised she's at a career high of of twenty five yeah and there aren't that many players younger than her who are ranked higher maybe there's about five. Yeah, so she's just kind of got to stick around and hold off the likes of Yastrzemska, which could be difficult. But what do you what do you make of a a victory like her win over Petra Kvitova? This this final run wouldn't have happened without her beating Petra Kvitova in the quarterfinals, and it's her only really good win this week. I mean, her other wins were over Basinski, um, lucky loser Veronica Kudermetova, and wildcard Veris Monareva. So it's the Kvitova win that she has to take away from this week and, and be proud of. But Kvitova also was playing the Australian Open final a week ago. Um, she had only had one match in St. Petersburg. I had predicted on last week's podcast she wasn't even going to play. She was just going to, to take this week off after um, after making the Australian Open final. So at a time like this, do, do you give Vekic full credit for knocking off a number one seed and top two player? 
maybe almost full credit. I, I, I think if it were her first, if it were Kvitova's first match in St. Petersburg, it would be a lot more suspect. But because Kvitova really did show up and not only play but beat a pretty tough, uh, get through a pretty tough draw for her first match of Victoria Azarenka, uh, that gives me a little more reason to to take Kvitova's intent in the tournament seriously. Yeah, that's true. I did watch that Kvitova Azarenka match and. It, it it's not peak Vika by any means, but that was a solid match. Both I mean, Petra wasn't playing as well as she was in Melbourne, but she was still playing quite well. As was Azarenka, so it was an it was an interesting match. Lots of big hitting, obviously, and both of them were playing reasonably well. Kvitova definitely had to be invested in it at least somewhat to um, to want to get through that one and play another round. Um. One more thing on the women's side, although this is not just related to women's tennis, but the WTA is using the serve clock at all premier events this year. Uh, so it's it's been in use since midway, since after the grass season last year. It was at the U.S. Open. It was at the Australian Open. And now the WTA is buying into it. Maybe next year we'll see it at all WTA events. And I did a quick study on this. Um, just this past week, it's on the Tennis Abstract blog, uh, I looked at results from the Australian Open to see whether matches were faster from uh, compared to last year or the year before to, to look at the point-by-point data and see whether there was were fewer instances when players were going over 25 or 30 seconds. And in general, it was a whole lot of nothing. Like the, the time per point was almost exactly the same. The frequency of going over 25 seconds was almost exactly the same. Uh, it's almost exactly what I found after Cincinnati, after the U.S. Open last year. I've, I've done these calculations a few times now and repeatedly found that the serve clock is not speeding up the game. If anything, it's slowing it down a little bit, although that wasn't the case in Melbourne. Uh, at the same time, no one's complaining about it really at this point, uh, and the WTA is buying in. Am I missing something, Carl? Is there... Are there positives to this clock that outweigh the fact that it's not doing any quantifiable good? I could see a couple of positives. One, we now everybody knows there's no ambiguity. I don't I don't know if anyone is uh, recording exactly. Um, it, you know, is is kind of logging this for every match and you've done great data analysis work on it, but it's even for people who aren't, who are just in the crowd, they can see when players go over and they can see when it's not being enforced. And I guess the second thing is once you have a clock, there are a lot of things you can, you can do with it. Like, you know, I think what some people have, have raised as, as a reason for it not, seeming to speed up matches is that players are pretty much going to the limit every time, or at least more often than they used to for players who, who used to on most points be pretty quick. And you could imagine like, okay, that was an ACE 12 seconds till the next point and, and starting to, to be more rational about it instead of just like a blanket rule. I mean, then you could, then for one out of every 30 points, that's a really exciting rally if you put 30 seconds on the clock, that's, um, that's not, you know, that's, that's reasonable and it won't really affect the overall length of the match very much. 
And you could say that sounds incredibly confusing and complicated, but there's a clock that everyone can see. And if anyone watched the Super Bowl last night, there's that that's how a team of 11 players has to figure out what to how to get set up for the next play. So it's it's manageable. So I don't know if my, my ideas that I just made up are ones that should be adopted. But the point is, there's just more options now that it's the technology is in place. Yeah, that's true. And that's a point you made after the U.S. Open as well that I had, had forgotten that once you get buy-in for the clock, then I mean, an easy step would just be to say, you know what, 25 seconds is too much. We're going to make it 20. And you've got the clock. Look at the clock. Done. Um, but you're right. You could you could tweak it based on what happens in the point. Um, the transparency is really valuable. I do want to answer your question that you asked if anybody watched the Super Bowl last night. And I don't think anybody did, did they? I don't. Yeah, probably. I'm the only one. It was it was on some weird cable channel, and yeah, the ads were mostly for this podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's the advertising space. They're basically giving it away. Um, yeah. So I mean, we'll see what they do with the surf clock. I after this is not the first time that after talking to you, I am a little bit more optimistic about it, just because th- there are some paths to making it useful. Uh, it's just really frustrating that you don't hear any tennis officials talking about improving it at this point. Um, The only quotes I see are just talking about how they've seen it work, that players are happy with it. Therefore we're using it. And because we're using a serve clock, we are helping control the problem of matches going too long, which it's not. So kind of the same situation with the USTA talking or not talking about keeping tournaments in the U S like I would like to know more about what, what tennis officials are trying to do. Um, so that we can know better whether it's successful or what to expect in the future. Um, since we are in probably our last 10 minutes of this episode, it's time for the doubles ghetto, um, where we finally get around to talking about doubles. We didn't do it at all last week, even though there was some some doubles results to discuss from the Australian Open. The first thing that I wanted to mention was big credit to Pierre Hugerbert and Nicolas Mahou, who have now won the career Grand Slam, all four events. Um, I don't remember how many teams have done that, but it's not very many. Uh, and I I wrote something, looks like May of last year, no, May of two years ago, that I had expected that doubles results were about the same across every surface, that there weren't, there weren't the same extremes of surface specialists that you see in the singles game. Although hearing that sentence, I'm not sure there are surface, extreme surface specialists in the singles game. But I expected it to be even more homogenous in doubles and found the opposite, that um, results on one surface were less predictive on other surfaces in doubles than in singles. And if I'm interpreting that right, then I would have to think that, uh, that the doubles career Grand Slam is is a bigger accomplishment than the singles career Grand Slam, at least relative to just winning one or two. Um, do you think that's right, Carl? That I mean, maybe we're underplaying how impressive um, Mahu and Herbert winning the career Grand Slam is? I think on this show we're very quickly playing instead of underplaying. <laughs> I, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the, I'll get to the service thing in a second, but just the fact that they're in singles, you are always yourself. So if you win four <laughs> Grand Slams for, you know, each uh, Grand Slam event in singles, you win the career Grand Slam. In doubles, you actually have to stay together with a partner. So the Bryan twins have that built-in advantage in, in achieving that goal a while ago. 
these two guys came together, I don't know, three, four years ago. It wasn't that long ago that they came together. One, Herbert is, is quite a bit younger, so he um, he wasn't even like a, a factor in doubles um, for that long. So so that, that to me is even more impressive, that they've come together, stayed together long enough to do it. I hope they stay together longer. I think they're a great team. Uh, in terms of the surface thing, yeah, I mean, I was thinking like, oh, maybe there's some other explanation for, for what you're finding. But doubles prize money is so low that I think teams generally play a pretty complete schedule. You could have a wrinkle of one of the partners being a singles player with a certain preference, but it hasn't really been a factor, I bet, for this team. They probably just played the same sing- singles events when they were entering the singles draw. Um, the one asterisk I'd put on it is that doubles Grand Slams have 64 teams in the draw, not 128. So it's one fewer match that they need to win. But but still, really impressive. My guess is there aren't that many teams who have even come close uh, in the Bryans era. Yeah, I think that's true. And one thing is what you mentioned, that most teams just don't stick together. So it would be interesting to check how many individual players have done it. Maybe there are a few more who've, who've achieved the Grand Slam on their own in doubles. But... Um, but yeah, I concur on on all those points. I mean, one one thing that might explain my surface finding is is that there are there are more net related tactics in doubles, obviously, but they aren't universally applied. So on a hard court, you have a team like I mean, not on a hard court, on a clay court rather, you have a team like Mark Lopez and whoever Mark Lopez is playing with, where they both stand at the baseline and bash as long as they can, whereas generally that sort of team is going to struggle at Wimbledon. At Wimbledon, you're going to have a, maybe even a team that's sometimes serving volleying, that's doing a lot more aggressive play, keeping points short. I wouldn't be surprised if the tactical difference between winning the French Open and winning Wimbledon or winning a hardcore event is bigger in doubles than it is in singles, since someone like Djokovic doesn't have to change their game style too much to win all four of the slams because that one style works so well, regardless of the surface. Uh, last thing someone I, like Djokovic someone <laughs> like someone like Djokovic yes someone like Borna Toric just 25% better um, last thing for this week in the, the back corner of the doubles corner is mixed doubles um, we teased this last week and I wrote something on the blog on Friday which based on my stats you haven't read not you Carl any of the listeners I believe Carl there's you are the one hit on that article so thank you for reading that Jeff is never going to write about mixed doubles again if you people don't listen don't don't read the article yeah it's um it, it's always a bit depressing the week after slams because there's so much more interest in tennis so even if I don't write anything good um the traffic spikes a lot, both on Tennis Abstract in general and on the blog. But then if I keep writing the week after, then stats just plummet no matter what, because nobody really cares anymore. Um, but we do. We still care about mixed doubles. And the cool thing that prompted this article was the Australian Open is the first time I'm aware of that there was point-by-point data published that specified the server of every point. So... We're all curious, I mean, I'm assuming we're all curious about the, the, the influence of men and women in mixed doubles, how much their performance differs, but it would have taken a lot of manual data collection to get an answer to that before. Now the Australian Open built that into their system. So we had service for every point. Um, 
our friend Jeff from Hidden Game of Tennis went through most of the doubles, the mixed doubles matches to identify who was returning on each side. So we not only know who was serving on every point, but also who was the returner on every point. So we were able to look at uh, what what percent of serve points were won by men and women, what percent of serve points were won when each gender was serving to the other. And starting with the most basic finding that men won 65% of their service points and women won 61 uh, I was really surprised that the gap was that narrow. I mean, normally when people talk about mixed doubles, they're talking about how you have to hold when when the man is serving. You just have to give it your best shot and try to hold on when the woman is serving. you got to take the opportunity to break when the other woman is serving. I mean, it's, it sounded like this weird 90-10 thing to listen to, to commentators talk. I knew it wasn't that extreme, but to have it be 65 and 61 really highlights, I mean, A, how good a lot of the, the, the women playing doubles are at, at serving strategically, even as men. But, I mean, just how, how small the gap is. I mean, I, I think you were surprised by that too, Carl, right? Well, what was my guess? I thought my guess was a gap of like six points. I know I expected both to have higher. Um, I was surprised, although I think that the um, the height and reach of the man at net is really a uh, powerful weapon for the woman serving in mixed. Yeah, that's a good point. I did just look up your guess. You guessed seventy-one sixty-four. So it was... I only remember the 71. Uh, seven point. Okay. Yeah. So the, the, better than I thought. Probably better than I would have guessed. Um, I was I was also surprised just by how how low it was in general. Because um, I think in men's doubles it's sixty eight. I think that's right. I mentioned it in that post. Um, but yeah, the the net player seems to have a big fa- uh, have a big influence on things. So yeah, that that's an interesting interesting finding there. Another one was that there are, there were some teams where the woman actually served better than the mandate in terms of service points won. So, um, if you want to go for supporting traditional gender roles, then that tells you that the, having the man at the net is, is really key. If, if, if you're more modern than that, then we can talk about how great the, the women's servers are. I'm happy to settle for just talking about how amazing all the players are. Um, but I was really happy to to get these results in. Was there anything else that I mean that you were interested in seeing, Carl? That to, to dig more into this gender gap because I know we, we've talked a lot about what we could find from this sort of mixed doubles data. We've never really had it before. Um, but I was curious if you had any additional thoughts on the topic. Well, I, I thought it was interesting your look at speed of serve, and basically you're finding that um, men are are serving about as fast to men as they are to women. So there isn't like this, um, this, this effect of them, um, you know, not wanting to hit hard at women opponents, uh, that David Marrero said applied to his mixed doubles strategy, such as it was. Um, and you know, even some of that could be a factor that I've heard people mention before with mixed of, the biggest uh, thing for women to have to adjust to when playing against men is spin, not speed. So it could be that men focus more on putting kick on their serves than they do on putting speed on their serves. Yeah, that's that's probably true. I mean, the, the speed difference between at least most of these men and the biggest female servers is almost nothing. I mean, I think when I was looking at Naomi Osaka's 
serve speeds, which I talked about uh, in last week's podcast, her average first serve speed is 105. I mean, she's fairly regularly, regularly topping 120. And yeah, there are men who can hit 130 or hit 120 more regularly, but most of the men playing doubles aren't the very biggest servers. So they're not serving faster than the women have to deal with every week. Um, so it really is just this the spin probably, and the angles are going to look a little different. Um, but anyway, we're going to go into the French Open as more educated mixed doubles viewers, which is long awaited and pretty exciting, I think. So we're past our hour mark, so let's wrap it up there. Left a lot of things on the table, but some of the topics we didn't talk about were things that I posted on the blog this past week. So if you're interested in reading about where Novak Djokovic stands in the adjusted Grand Slam race or looking at his his tactics or other tactics players have used against him, then check those out on the on the blog at tennisabstract.com. And yeah, in lots more tennis this week, several tournaments underway, plus the Women's Fed Cup, which was also in our show notes, but we didn't get to, but I'm sure we'll talk about that in the next episode. So Carl, as usual, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Jeff. Listeners, thank you for sticking with us this long. Check out the 30 Love podcast with Carl and his guests, and we'll see you next week.